Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 171, Two Rulers. Now I suspect, rightly or wrongly, that you will by now be exhausted with the continual violence and warring of the last few episodes, and hoping that at last there is some sort of respite, a chance to celebrate the arts of peace rather than the arts of war. And to some degree, there is, and we can turn once again, gentle listeners, to the paths of love. There can be few people who waited for the news of the Battle of Towton more anxiously than Cecily Neville. After the terrible shock of Wakefield, she'd sent her younger children abroad, but she herself had stayed in Baynard Castle in London. So we might picture Cecily waiting anxiously for news, and to help with that, I should tell you just a bit more about Cecily's day. There is a word of warning about what follows. This comes from Papers written about Cecily's life when she was 60, so in 1485, when she might have been loosely following the vows of a Benedictine nun, so it's possible she wasn't quite as strict in 1461, where we are now. But there's no doubt, even then, that Cecily was a fiercely pious person, very much in line with the strength of personal devotion in the 15th century. There might be a degree of anti-clericalism about, and quite a strong strand of anti-papal feeling, but that should not be mistaken for a lack of spirituality or a lack of strength of religious feeling. So, Cecily liked to rise at seven, when her chaplain would say matins, and once ready for the day, she would celebrate low mass. I don't actually know what that means, so someone might like to enlighten me, but I assumed it essentially meant that there was no food or drink on the menu. Before dinner, which I assumed to be the main meal of the day, early mid-morning, 
She would have celebrated another service, and then during dinner she read religious tracts such as the Lives of Saints, with a particular interest clearly in the female saints, like Catherine of Siena or Saint Bridget. After dinner, she gave herself to the business of the day, giving audiences, after which she had what my grandfather used to call 40 whips. Ah, no he didn't. My grandfather did nothing with a whip, believe me. What my grandfather used to call 40 winks. Anyway, then she spent the time in prayer until it was time for Evensong, of which she had two versions, one with her chaplain and another service. Then it was finally time for a bit of goss and games with her gentlewomen, and maybe even a bit of wine, and then to her private closet for a last prayer, and all tucked up in bed safely by eight. So it could well have been that Cecily was at her prayers, when on the 3rd of April a messenger came clattering into Baynard Castle. We know something of what the letter said from John Paston. And with the help of Richard Barber's book, The Pastons, I'm going to read a few sections from various letters, because it seems to me to give a rather nice flavour of how news would have reached everyone in those days, in dribs and drabs, some right, some wrong, some earlier, some later corrected. So here we go. Our sovereign lord has won the campaign and was received in York with great solemnity and processions. And the mayor and the commons contrived to have his grace, through Lord Montague and Lord Berners. On the king's side, Lord Fitzwalter was killed, and Lord Scroop badly hurt. John Stafford and Horn of Kent are dead, and Humphrey Stafford and William Hastings made knight amongst others. Blount is knighted. On the other side, Lord Clifford, Lord Neville, Lord Wells, Lord Willoughby, Anthony Lord Scales, Lord Harry, and apparently the Earl of Northumberland, Andrew Trollope, and many other gentlemen and commoners, to the number of 20,000, are dead. King Henry, the Queen, the Prince of Wales, the Duke of Somerset, the Duke of Exeter and Lord Roos have fled into Scotland and they are being chased and followed. We did not send word to you before because we had no definitive news. For until today, London was as sad a city as it could be. Now the Bishop of Elphin was also at Cecily's house at the time the letter came and he reported a little of her reaction. On hearing the news, the Duchess returned to the chapel with two chaplains and myself, and there we said Te Deum, after which I told her that the time was come for writing to your lordship, of which she approved. The Your Lordship was the papal legate, which gives us some idea not only of the importance of God in Cecily's life, but also of the central role she held in dealing with foreign dignitaries. Cecily would have expected to have a major influence over her son and the running of his affairs. She wasn't somebody to be ignored lightly. News continued to filter back to the capital from York. On the 18th of April, Paston wrote, It is rumoured that the Earl of Wiltshire is taken, and Dr Morton and Dr Mackerel, and they had been taken to the King at York. Master Williams spoke to a man who saw them. Dr Morton was Chancellor to the Little Prince of Wales and an eminent Lancastrian lawyer who had been incarcerated in the Tower for a while before escaping to join his Queen in exile. He's also, incidentally, the inspiration for the phrase Morton's Fork, of which we'll hear much more in the reign of Henry VII. Paston then continued, Sir, I heard from Sir John Borster that Henry VI is in a place in Yorkshire called Corcumbra. The place is besieged and various squires of the Earl of Northumberland have gathered five or six thousand men to attack the besiegers. 
Some say that the Queen, Somerset and the Prince of Wales are there. It is reported to be true that the Earl of Northumberland is dead. The Earl of Devonshire is indeed dead. And then later, the Earl of Wiltshire and the Doctors were captured at Cockermouth. Some men say that Lord Wells, Willoughby and Scales are alive. As information sorted itself out, what emerged was that Somerset and Exeter were not among the dead at Towton. They fled for York to find the King, Queen and Prince, and from there they fled to Scotland. The reference to Corcumbra in Yorkshire probably actually refers to Kirkubri in Scotland, and all the stuff about the five or six thousand men is probably tosh. Kirkubri, incidentally, can join Rithin in the potty pronunciation list, given that it's quite clearly spelt Kirkudbright. But fortunately, I had prior experience, and so was able not to fall in that particular elephant pit of Anglo-Scottish relations. Thomas Courtney, Earl of Devon and murderer of Nicholas Radford, made it to York, but was discovered and beheaded. It's not the end for the Courtney family, but just when things seem to be going their way, it's not now going to be a good 20 years or so. And it is indeed finally the end of all the fun that James Butler, Earl of Wiltshire, has provided us with. Unsurprisingly, he made it off the battlefield of Towton and made it quite a way north before he was captured. This time, for the man who, as one chronicler said, fought mainly with the heels, for he was frightened of losing his beauty, there was no escape, and he was taken to Newcastle and executed. It turned out that Anthony Woodville, Lord Scales, was not dead. Meanwhile, events were keenly observed outside of England as well. The Milanese, Prospero di Camulio, ambassador to the court of France, wrote about events on the 18th of April to say, If they are taken that is, Henry and Margaret, then that kingdom may be considered settled and quiet under King Edward and the Earl of Warwick. And then, as they are well affected to the Dauphin and the Duke of Burgundy, it seems likely they will pursue the plan to pass to France. I have observed the great importance that the Duke of Burgundy attaches to England. Thus he has kept in with the Earl of Warwick and his son, never doing this again, with the Queen of England so that whatever happens, England will have friendship in the house of the Duke of Burgundy. Well, there are a few things to pick out of that gobbit for you, apart from the appalling attempt at an Italian accent. Firstly, the politics of France remain a complete hoot. Philip the Good, the Duke who walked out on England at Arras, is still the boss in Burgundy. He doesn't get on terribly well with his son and heir, Charles the Bold. So Philip tended to favour the House of York, while Charles tended to side with whichever the King of France supported. In France, Charles VII is still the king, though not for much longer, it has to be said. And hey, guess what? He doesn't get on with his son and heir, Louis the Dauphin. No, surely you jest. So therefore, Louis the Dauphin tended to favour York, while Charles the king favoured Lancaster, to the extent he favoured anyone. For Edward and Warwick, all this was important. It was important politically, since Margaret and Henry, while still at large, would without doubt be looking for support on the continent. It was important in terms of trade, since Burgundy continued to control the low countries where so much of England's trade was bound. And it was important dynastically, as at some point Edward will look to revive the old claim to the throne of France. The other thing to pick out of this was the reputation of Warwick the Kingmaker. Here's Prospero di Camulio again. My Lord of Warwick has made a new king of the Duke of York's son. Possibly unfairly, the perception was that Warwick was the prime mover here. Edward was the protégé, 
and was expected to play second or even third fiddle to Warwick and be heavily influenced by Cecily. OK, so Warwick had a tendency to panic, needlessly kill horses and refuse to move from the spot he occupied, but Warwick's standing on the continent in particular was so high that the governor of Abbeville joked in a letter to the French king Louis XI, They have but two rulers, Monsieur de Warwick and another whose name I've forgotten. Ha ha, very good. How Edward and Cecily must have laughed. But if anyone believed all of this, his name was Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. He expected now to cash in big time for all his swashbuckling. Anyway, we're not completely out of the woods of war, but Towton was without doubt a massive and decisive victory. The heads of the Percy, Clifford and Dacre families, Lancastrian lords in the north, were all killed at Towton, which heavily reduced the ability of the Lancastrians to react. The far north was for a while to be the centre of resistance to the House of York, but the way was open to bring it to heel. So one of Edward's first acts, of course, was to pass an act of attainder, which, as I think we've discussed before, is the judicial murder of the noble family. All lands and goods removed from the family now and forever. In 1461, Edward was able to pass an act which included a whole bunch of knights, gentlemen and yeomen, and included some really significant names. The Duke of Somerset, Percy, the Westmoreland Nevilles, Clifford, Dacre, Roos, who was a lord who had now fled with the Queen. Thomas Courtney, Exeter, Beaumont. There are a couple of interesting absences to the Act of Attainder, men who fought against Edward at the battle. One is a man called Shijong Grey, a knight of no great significance to us, except that he was married to one Elizabeth Woodville. Grey would, however, be dead before the end of the year, leaving his young 24-year-old wife Elizabeth in a spot of bother, struggling to hold on to her dower lands and to provide for her two sons. Another interesting absence was the rest of the Woodville family. We've heard quite a bit about her father, Richard Woodville, Lord Rivers, who scandalised society by marrying Jacquetta of Luxembourg, the Duchess of Bedford, who's been a consistent opponent of York. Rivers and his eldest son, Anthony Woodville, were together at Towton as well. Anthony had been at Calais when Warwick and the young Edward had captured them and mocked them as parvenus. They were imprisoned but not attainted at this point, and the Woodvilles will begin to figure highly in Edward's reign. Edward spent a month in the north, but by the end of June he'd returned to London and completed the ceremonies he'd started in February and was now officially crowned and announced King of England. Now look, if I became king at the age of 19 after years of blood-soaked warfare, I would be in a supercharged panic mode, worrying about doing the right thing, making the right decisions, all that sort of thing. I would incarcerate myself in various rooms with various grown-ups with big brains. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong impression of Edward. I will present, I think, plenty of evidence that Edward worked hard and had a superb grasp of the issues and how to solve them. But he was also 19. 19 years old and released into a wonderland where he's the king, everyone wants to impress him, be his friend and other things, and he's a tall, good-looking, athletic 19-year-old, probably hung like a baboon to boot. So Edward IV started to have fun. Here's a lovely letter from one Giovanni Pietro Cagnoli of Lodi to Francesco Saforza, the Duke of Milan. The king yesterday rode to a castle of his called Windsor for hunting. The king's desires seem to me to be directed towards having some sort of pleasure. 
It is true that he tries hard to afford every kind of pleasure he can to the Count, both festivities of ladies and hunting. I have no news from here except that the Earl of Warwick has taken Monsignor de Rivora and his son, i.e. Richard and Anthony Woodville, who had them imprisoned in the tower. Thus they say every day favours the Earl of Warwick, who seems to me to be everything in this kingdom. So Edward threw himself into festivities of ladies and hunting, and Warwick was everything in the kingdom. The atmosphere was very different now. It had been very difficult indeed for England to accept the idea of Richard of York becoming king, and the resentment his actions caused were real. It was much easier, though, to accept his son. So while I imagine Richard wasn't pleased about dying at Wakefield and having his head stuck on a spike over Micklegate Bar, nonetheless he'd actually done the cause of York quite a lot of good in so doing. On behalf of the Yorkist cause, Richard, may I be the first to say thanks. We appreciate it. It was much easier for England to accept his son because he had much less baggage. He was already proving enormously popular. Warwick the Kingmaker, I think we can begin to call him that now, might at this stage look everything in the kingdom, but everyone loved Edward. He was everything a king should be, and the Henry was not. Big, brave, handsome, companionable, with a love of display and grandeur that was very much expected and required of the medieval king. And he was already showing a lightness of touch in managing his people and his nobility. So the atmosphere was changing. Folk were beginning to feel that actually the Lancastrian cause was now done, and it was sensible and reasonable to back this new cause. Here's one more quote from another Milanese observer to Francesco Soforza. I have returned from England. I was well received, and as much honour as possible was done me by the king and the lords and the gentlemen of his court. The lords adherent to Henry are all quitting him, and have come to tender obedience to this king, and at this present time... One of the chief of them has come, by name Lord de Rivers, with one of his sons, men of very great valour. I held several conversations with this Lord de Rivers about King Henry's cause, and he answered me that the cause was lost irretrievably. And remember, this was from a man in Richard Woodville, the Lord Rivers referred to, who had remorselessly stuck by and been active in Henry's cause. This was not any old turncoat. Cecily Neville also shared in the success. Cecily was now at the centre of affairs and expected to be recognised as such. The same Bishop of Elphin, which is in Ireland, by the way, wrote to the papal legate. As soon as you can, write to the King, the Chancellor and other lords, as I see they wish it. Also to the Duchess, who is partial to you, and holds the King at her pleasure. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Edward played up to this, especially in the early days. He granted Cecily the lands held by his father and subsidised Cecily's increasingly lavish expenditure. The three youngest of the York brood, Margaret, George and Richard, were installed in the luxurious Riverside Palace at Greenwich, which had been Humphrey of Gloucester's Renaissance paradise. These three will, of course, play a big role over the next 20 or more years. Margaret was the eldest, 15 years old. 
She was described as tall like her brother Edward and, quote, having an air of intelligence and wit. At Greenwich, her education would have included both the religious and the practical. Some knowledge of arithmetic, an understanding of estate and household management, even property law. In common with her brothers, she would have been taught French, and many of her collection of books were to be in French, unsurprisingly given her later life. Her collection was impressive when she died, 25 of them, a good number for the time, and it reflected her literary interest. It was under her auspices that Caxton would publish the first book to be printed in English, a book about the tales of Troy. And Caxton was to write that she sent him some helpful corrections, which of course is something every publisher loves to receive from authors, as much feedback about exactly how we've screwed up as possible. We love it, bring it on. Anyway, Margaret was also to follow her mother with a pronounced piety, with a passion for relics, an intellectual interest in the subject, and a fervour that at times would feel almost hysterical. And, of course, without wanting to be unfeeling, for Edward, her marriage would be an enormously valuable counter in the diplomatic game. Margaret's brothers were younger. George was now almost 12, and in 1461 he shared in the success of the clan. He'd been born in Dublin, and Edward made him Duke of Clarence, and the following year endowed him with the honour of Richmond. He didn't give him the title Earl of Richmond. That had last been held by Edmund Tudor, and was declared forfeit in 1461. Edmund Tudor's brother, the tireless Lancastrian Jasper Tudor, had fled with Queen Margaret to Scotland. So you might then wonder what happened to Edmund and Margaret Beaufort's young son, Henry Tudor, now four years old. Well, as it happens for the moment, although by 1462 he'd seen his lands granted away to wardship, Margaret Beaufort and Henry Tudor were not in a bad place at all. Margaret Beaufort had married Henry Stafford after the death of Edmund Tudor and their marriage seems to have been successful and close as far as we can tell. Henry Stafford had fought with the Lancastrians at Towton, but as we'll see, Edward had the vision to realise he couldn't afford to remain at war with all the Lancastrian lords. And Stafford was pardoned. He became, in fact, a loyal supporter of Edward, and this was despite some pretty strong temptations to play on the Lancastrian team, such as the loyalties of his father and of his wife. However, having said that, Margaret was separated from her son, Henry Tudor. Henry's wardship was granted to the fierce Yorkist Welsh lord, William Herbert. Henry became part of Herbert's household and was brought up in Raglan in Wales. But at this point, Henry Tudor really didn't seem to be any kind of threat to the throne. It was way down the royal pecking order, especially with Henry VI and Prince Edward alive. And so Henry seems to have been very well treated by Herbert, who may well have had one of his daughters in mind for an advantageous marriage at some point. Which leaves us, of Cecily's children and Edward IV's siblings, with Richard, now nine years old. By the end of 1461, he'd been made Richard of Gloucester, and like brother Clarence, made a knight of the garter. And we will, of course, see much more of Richard. Right, so, lots of names and catching up. But what are the Lancastrians? Have they really given up without a fight? And indeed, what are the Kingmaker and his family, the Nevilles? Well, Warwick and the Neville family were showered with goodies. Warwick was made, get this, Chamberlain of England, Admiral of England, Warden of the Sink Ports, 
Warden of the Eastern and Western Marches in the North, Steward of the Duchy of Lancaster, awarded all the Percy estates in Northumberland. The list goes on. He inherited all of his mother's estates when she died in 1462, so basically, in summary, Warwick wasn't short of a bob or two. At his height, Warwick could rely on £7,000 a year in income, an absolutely stonking amount of money. It's unsurprising that he should be considered the real power behind the throne, and at very least he was king in the north. And specifically, actually, he was charged by Edward to take control of and pacify the north. Other Nevilles came in for honours as well. Falkenberg was made Earl of Kent. John Neville, Warwick's brother, made Lord Montague. George Neville, as we've heard, made Chancellor of England and also Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, the latter post, solemn and deeply important for the spiritual and religious health of the country as it was, was truly celebrated in appropriate religious style. I.e., with a humongous knees up over several days for 6,000 guests, yes, 6,000 guests, who consumed over 100 oxen and 25,000 gallons of wine. Not a hair shirt in sight. Nonetheless, among all these fun and games, there were some real and pressing challenges with which Edward had to deal, and which were to define the first three years of his reign up to 1464. These were broadly threefold. Number one, suppressing Lancastrian resistance. Towton categorically did not end support for Henry and the Lancastrian claim to the throne. Number two, establish law and order. England was in a chaos of misgovernance and lawlessness. There were broadly two elements to this lawlessness. The lack of royal authority meant that magnates felt free to beat seven bells out of each other for personal gain. And the lack of a royal authority meant that the normal application of justice was even more partial and venal than ever. And let's say it didn't start in a good place. Number three. Establish a Yorkist regime with a wider base of support. The Yorkist cause so far had been characterised by a very heavy reliance on just a few major families, much more narrow than Henry's support had been. Edward recognised that the key to all three lay at least partly in the way that he dealt with his nobility. And his approach was to be that everyone essentially had their chance to prove their loyalty to the new regime. Clearly, there were some completely recalcitrant lords with whom he could never be reconciled, and he just had to crush them without Ruth getting involved in any way whatsoever. Exeter, Jasper Tudor, clearly fell into this category. But others, as we have already seen, were pardoned and fell in line relatively quickly. The Woodvilles, Henry Stafford, for example. The trick was to draw the line in the right place. And there are a few glaring examples where Edward proves to be overgenerous. As far as law and order is concerned, Edward recognised that direct action was needed and needed now, and that re-establishing royal justice was also clearly integral to establishing his new regime. As we said, it was a mess. In one of the Paston letters, Margaret Paston expressed the hope that there may be set a good rule in this country in haste, for I heard never say of so much robbery and manslaughter in this country as is now within a little time. So over the next two to three years, Edward himself took part in a series of royal processions where justice was meted out in key territories. 
He set up several commissions of OIE and Termine, i.e. centrally controlled judicial reviews, which in theory at least could be independent of the local power structures and corruption that bedeviled medieval justice. Edward pursued this policy with rigour and energy, and he might love the high life, but this was a man who understood the levers of power, who could combine ruthlessness with generosity. To set against his generosity to the likes of Rivers and Stafford, in 1462 he presided over the execution of Baron Fulford in the West Country. As a slightly grisly aside, Fulford's head remained on a spike in the marketplace in Exeter for six months, until it was removed because, quote, it daily falleth down. Gives us a lovely picture of the weary citizens of Exeter sticking a decomposed head back on its spike while trying to do the weekly shop. Also, in 1462, Edward discovered a plot against him by the Earl of Oxford, as a result of which the Earl and his eldest son were executed. The main centres of resistance were in the north and northeast, and in Wales. Throughout his reign, Edward worked through trusted lieutenants to enforce royal control in different regions. In the north, it was Warwick, William Hastings, and later, Brother Richard. In Wales, it was the talented and fiercely loyal Welsh nobleman, William Herbert. Herbert faced widespread resistance in Wales from Jasper Tudor and Exeter, and there was plenty of opportunity for banana skins. But he efficiently retook Pembroke Castle, defeated both of them in battle near Carnarvon. Jasper and Exeter were forced to flee back to the northeast to join the Queen. Effective he might have been, but Herbert also profited massively from his loyalty and power in Wales. In addition to the wardship of young Henry Tudor, he was made Earl of Pembroke and given vast tracts of land throughout the Principality, which amounted to considerably more than just a pair of curtains. Like Warwick in the north of England until his death in 1469, Herbert was effectively king in Wales. In fact, Harlech Castle held out for King Henry until 1468, but really effective resistance was at an end. Which leaves us just with King Henry and Queen Margaret. It leaves us with one of the heroic stories of grit, passion and sheer guts that is Margaret's struggle to defend the rights of her son. The North East in particular remained fiercely Lancastrian, and several major fortresses held out for Henry, Bamborough, Berwick, Annick, Dunstanborough. In this resistance lay three deeply entrenched drivers, the traditional power, support and local loyalty commanded by the Percy family, the continuing loyalty to the House of Lancaster, and the intervention of foreign powers. Support from Margaret from Scotland was critical. You'll remember, Margaret had already signed away Berwick in return for this support. And while the Queen Regent in Scotland, Mary of Gelders, appeared willing to change tack and make peace with Edward in the interests of peace, the Bishop of St Andrews, James Kennedy, fiercely resisted any backsliding. I don't think too ill of him. He did also establish St Salvatore's College at the University of St Andrews, for which I am personally grateful. But while the Scots continued to support Lancaster, Subduing the North East remained beyond Warwick in England for the moment. A good example of this came in September 1461. Warwick finally managed to retake the great Percy stronghold of Annick. Hurrah! Soon afterwards, Dunstanborough Castle also submitted. Hurrah! Only for Ralph Percy to be forgiven and awarded the command of the castle. Boo! 
only for Ralph Percy to be forgiven and awarded the command of the castle he'd been so recently holding for Henry. Boo. But the point was, they couldn't rule without Percy's support. Now, Ralph Percy was seriously unlikely to be a good bet for the Yorkists. His father, the second Earl of Northumberland, Henry Percy, had died fighting for Lancaster at St Albans in 1455. His elder brother, the third Earl, had died fighting for Lancaster at Towton and been attainted. The heir, Ralph's nephew, was currently cooling his heels in the Tower of London. And yet, despite this, Ralph Percy was left in control of Dunstanborough. There are two things going on here. Edward's sometimes over-generous policy to give his nobility a second chance, and the massive challenge, as I say, of controlling the North East without Percy's support. Sometimes Edward got it wrong. This was to be one such example. Meanwhile, with the help of the Scots, the Lancastrian lords Roos, Dacre, Jasper Tudor, Exeter, launched raids into the north of England, and Warwick responded with raids into Scotland, and the border burned. In April 1462, Queen Margaret set off for France. She needed to enlist the help of more powerful allies than Scotland. Hubby Henry stayed, apparently accompanying raids into England, on which I'm sure he was very useful. Margaret still had powerful friends. True enough, Philip, the Duke of Burgundy, appeared to be very much inclined to York and had refused to meet her and had also advised Mary of Gelders against a full alliance with Margaret. And in France, Charles VII, who had been supportive of the Lancastrian cause, had now died, and his successor Louis was thought to be inclined to the Yorkists. But Margaret was still a queen. Her ally Pierre de Brézé was at her side. Somerset had for some time been at the French court, trying to drum up support. Margaret was in Rouen by July 1462, She travelled to Brittany, where Duke Francis welcomed her and gave her gifts worth 12,000 crowns. And then she travelled to Angers to visit her father, while waiting anxiously to hear if King Louis would give her the audience de Bresse had been working hard to achieve. If Louis wouldn't meet her, Margaret's hopes would be faint indeed. It can't have helped her frame of mind that Louis appeared to have lobbed de Bresse in the clink. But as it happens, Margaret got her meeting. Louis's mother was Margaret's aunt, and maybe she was the arm twister involved. Louis and Margaret met at Chinon, and Margaret shamelessly dangled the most glittering prize she had in her theoretical possession, Calais. In return for French help, some men, some money and the release of de Brézé, Margaret agreed to give up England's last prize in France. Somerset, meanwhile, was back in Scotland, trying to gather an army of Scots to join the invasion, and in October 1462, Margaret finally set sail again to join her husband and reclaim the throne of England. So we'll leave Margaret hacking through the North Sea in her caravel and find out next week how she gets on, and we'll also turn to the vexed question of a royal marriage. A royal marriage that will put the proverbial cat amongst the proverbial pigeons. Before I go, can I also remind you all of the Agora Podcast Network. It's a great place to find other like-minded podcasts if and when you get bored of the History of England and Anglo-Saxon England podcasts or have a spectacularly large pile of ironing to be finished. There's a Facebook site and website to boot and all manner of opportunities for badinage. There's a link on my website and don't forget to check out the History of the Papacy website and podcast to boot.
My thanks to donator Samuel Alexandra. Alexander, I'm sure you are nothing like the word that you used. And in fact, I think you're jolly generous. Ambrose, Penelope and Andrea. And special thanks to monthly donators William and Dan. And thanks to everyone who's commented on the website, Facebook, iTunes and all that sort of thing. And to all of you who listen in. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.